week, we talked about how important it is to be reminded about the truths of the gospel and the greatness of God, even though we already know them. Uh, Even the truths that we know so well that we could teach to others, um, those are still things that are good to be reminded of. We read about practical examples of of setting examples as reminders for ourselves um, so that those truths are not just stored as information in the back of our minds, but that they are in the forefront of our minds, that there's something that we use to guide us in the day-to-day. Colossians 3.23 says, um, and Paul here is addressing slaves, but he says, and whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not to men. Heartily means that it's coming from our innermost being. It's not done as an intellectual practice. Um, It's not that we are trying to force ourselves into some uh, model of, of living, but it's, it's out of the new life in Christ that was, has begun in us that, that we desire to, to do these things, that we desire to follow God and not men. Um, it, isn't in, it isn't a sustainable thing if it isn't, um, if it isn't encouraged, if, if it isn't driven by a motivation uh, for God and his glory and for uh, for uh, the love that we share with him out of response to what he's done for us. So we had to keep that in the forefront of our minds. Uh, Since the Bible was so adamant that we should be reminded of things that we already know, I thought it would be good if this week I just go ahead and share the same message as last week. So, no, no, not really, but uh, I do hope that that you were able to apply some of the things that we talked about last week. Um, we talked about putting uh, things on your calendars or making notifications in your phone to remind you of things that, that you want to remember about God or things you want to remember to encourage your own uh, faith walk and your growth. Um, we even mentioned putting a huge stone, following the example of, of the Old Testament, putting some huge stone in your front yard as a reminder. I don't know that anybody's going to do that, but, but that would work. You know, that would stand out and be a reminder to you that God is your rock that you're going to build your life upon. So however you do it, just don't forget to remember. Uh, as for today, um, we're going to be moving into chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at the warnings about false teachers. Second Peter chapter 2, um, I said, I, I guess I was only kidding, uh, partially kidding about recap, about sharing last week's message, because we are going to look back at the end of chapter 1, because there's some key truths there that are really um, our primary protections for how we handle false teachings. So uh, let's start by going and reading again from from 2 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 19. It says, because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets you must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in our hearts. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Peter is emphasizing how important it is to pay close attention to what they wrote. It says you must pay close attention. You must realize that they spoke from God. Based on the fact that chapter 2 immediately dives into false teaching, 
it seems uh, safe to say that a big reason for this emphasis is so that we're not deceived, so that we don't lose our way. He describes the prophet's words as shining like a lamp in a dark place. It reminds me and maybe reminds you of a familiar verse that you find that we find in uh, Psalms 119. Verse 105 says, your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. And the verses before that give even more of a description of how the lamp of God's word can help us when we are confronted with false teaching. So we're going to read a big chunk here, starting at verse 97 to 104. Oh, how I love your instructions. I think about them all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are my constant guide. Yes, I have more insight than my teachers, for I'm always thinking of your laws. I'm even wiser than my elders, for I have kept your commandments and I have refused to walk on any evil path so that I may remain obedient to your word. I haven't turned away from your regulations, for you have taught me well how sweet your words taste to me. They are sweeter than honey. Your commandments give me understanding. No wonder I hate every false way of life. The author of Psalms loved God's word so much he described his laws and his commands and his regulations as being sweeter than honey. And he attributed the wisdom um, and the ability to stay in the right path to its instruction. He recognized that God's wisdom trumps even teachers and elders. God's word is a lamp unto our feet. It's not just um, a guiding light. It is the guiding light. It isn't uh, lesser than preachers and teachers. It is an equal uh, in light. It is the light that we use to judge all others. In the book of Luke, we see uh, Jesus, after his resurrection, he met up with a couple of the disciples that were walking on the road to Emmaus. The disciples didn't recognize him, and they start talking to him about, about himself, about Jesus, and telling him about all of his works and his teachings and how they had hoped that he was the Messiah. And we pick up this story in chapter 4, verse 25, and it says, uh, this is Luke chapter 24, verse 25, says, Then Jesus said to them, You foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all of the prophets, explaining from all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. We see here at the end of 2 Peter chapter 1, the, the same message is being taught. It says, pay close attention to the scriptures. Let those determine what you know to be true. These disciples, they saw Jesus die and they didn't understand it. It didn't make any sense to them because they were basing it on their own understanding rather than what the prophets had told them was going to happen. It's easy and seems even reasonable that our own understanding would greatly affect what we believe. But we can't trust our own understanding all the time. So a while back, I shared a, uh, an illustration about a gyroscope. Um, some of you may, have, may remember it. It was in like a wheel on a stick with a rope holding it. And if you just let go of the, the wheel, it just drops. The wheel ends up laying horizontally and nothing happens. But if you take it and you spin the wheel and you hold on the rope, now all of a sudden it just stays upright. Now by my understanding, 
if I were to hypothesize what was going to happen, if it was going to make a difference whether you spun that wheel or not and it was going to stay up, I would have said it was still going to fall down. My understanding was not enough to grasp that. I, I feel like I have a pretty good mechanical understanding, but my, my understanding failed me. Um, we are told in uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, it says, Lean not unto our own understanding. Uh, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Matt didn't make a mistake. Lord, didn't make a mistake, or Matt, I, I forgot to put that one in there, and I actually knew that, but I'm looking at the screen like, where is it? All right, lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall make your path straight. Has anyone ever told you uh, that you're not as smart as you think you are? <laughs> Maybe often, in, in my case. Uh, no. Um, well, if you ever find yourself questioning which is correct, God's word or your own understanding, you can be certain by looking at this verse that at least you are not as smart as God, right? All right, so that was the intro. Now we're going to move into the new material. So this is, that was the protection. It was a big piece of the protection. That's the, that's the core of what keeps us safe from false teaching. But now we're going to move into what uh, Peter has to say in chapter 2 about false teaching. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, But there were also false prophets in Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will cleverly teach destructive heresies and even deny the master who bought them. In this way, they will bring sudden destruction on themselves. Many will follow their evil teachings and shameful immorality. And because of these teachers, the way of the truth will be slandered. In their greed, they will make up clever lies to get a hold of your money. But God condemned them long ago, and their destruction will not be delayed. So there were false teachers before Christ came to earth. And it says that there will continue to be false teachers after. And not only will there be false teachers, but he says that they will be among you. Now, we have to remember the context of this letter was written to a broad group of Christians scattered throughout an area. So he wasn't specifically speaking to a group saying there's, there's a false teacher among you. We don't need to start scanning around and try and figure out which one of us is the false teacher. Um, but... Uh, among all those who are Christians, that call themselves Christians, there will be false teachers. And through the years, we have had some people who have come through the doors that may have proven to be false teachers that uh, almost the, the minute they came in wanted a platform to teach. Um, but Pastor Don and the elders acting as shepherds were careful to test those before giving them the platform that they desired. And before they had grown into the opportunity to have that, uh, they... They left. They did not stick around. And so um, we see an example of this shown in 1 John 2, 18 through 19. It says, Dear children, in the last hour is here, and you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. And already many such Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that the last hour has come. These people left our church, but they never really belonged with us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. When they left, it proved that they did not belong with us. False teachers recognize 
that in the presence of those who are holding firmly to the truth of God's word, that their deceptive teachings will be exposed and they'll have to go find some other place to try and deceive. Jesus describes false teachers as vicious wolves. It reminds me of the description of Satan that he's like a roaring lion. He roams around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. They're looking for easy prey, one that they can devour. Um, But John's readers could not be devoured. Um, Continuing in 1 John, in verse 20, it says, But you are not like that, for the Holy One has given you his spirit, and all of you know the truth. I am writing to you because, not because you don't know the truth, but because you know the difference between truth and lies. So those who are continually reminded of the words of the prophet, the truth of scripture, can stand strong in their faith because they recognize the difference between truth and lies. So we're going to move back now to, uh, to 2 Peter, and we're going to continue on, starting at verse 4. <clears throat> For God did not spare even the angels who sinned, he threw them into hell in gloomy pits of darkness where they are being held until the day of judgment. And God did not spare the ancient world except for Noah and the seven others in his family. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. So God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of the ungodly people with a vast flood. God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and turned them into heaps of ashes. He made them an example of what will happen to ungodly people. But God rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was, right, he was a righteous man who was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. Yes, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and he heard day after day. So you see, the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials, even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of their final judgment. So this section here uh, shows just how seriously God takes the distortion of truth. Um, As I was thinking about this, I I thought about how the word of God is truth, and that how in the Gospel of John we see how the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus is truth. Truth. Jesus even said of of himself, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So by knowing that Jesus is the embodiment of truth, that means that when somebody twists the truth, when somebody takes the word of God and and they try and deceive, they try and twist and make it say something different, so that's no longer a, a true representation of who God is and who Jesus is, they're defaming Jesus. They're defaming the name of Jesus by twisting the truth. And, and this is where this is a big deal. This is where God takes it really seriously. And you can see in this passage, he, he, he really emphasizes how serious this is. Peter shows just how big of a deal it is by, by attaching the destruction that is coming to these false teachers, these false prophets. Um, and he connects it with, with three other punishments that we can see in the past that God has poured out. And the first of these punishments has to do with angels that had sinned, and there's uh, some speculations about the exact details of what that means. It's a very interesting topic to dig into. I'm not going to dig into it today because it's kind of big. Um, but, uh, but the main point of it really is that the false teachers, just as, just as even these angels 
were given a certain punishment that they, that they could not escape, these false teachers will not escape punishment. And the punishment's going to be severe. When it says that they're thrown into hell, um, the, the word that's used for hell there is actually a word that is, uh, it's Tartarus. I think I'm saying that right, or Tartarus. Um, but, but it was a, a word that was depicting um, a, a deep place in hell, maybe even be, in the pits of hell, the deep, deep parts of hell. The thought was that it was as far below as heaven is above. It was as low as you could go. This was, um, this was a place that demons feared. And we see this uh, as we look in Luke. We see Jesus, when he cast the legion of demons out of the man into the pigs. Um, the, the demons, and I believe this is talking about the same, the same place, the same place that these other angels had been, or fallen angels had been sent. Um, they begged Jesus not to send them into the abyss. So this Tartarus or abyss is a place that the demons fear and the destruction of the false prophets is lumped into the same group. The next two examples <clears throat> that Peter gives, excuse me. The next two examples <clears throat> include both the flood and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Both instances were caused because of how great sin had become. And Genesis 6 says that, um, talking about the world prior to the flood, it says in verse 4, it says, In those days, and for some time after, giant Nephilites lived on the earth, for whenever the sons of God had intercourse with women, they gave birth to children who became the heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. The Lord, the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil." So evil had fully permeated human life. Everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. It appears um, from the verse before it, the way they're, they're tied together, it looks like there may have been some sort of sexual sin that was also a, a major uh, catalyst for this punishment. And that, that seems to fit in with a theme that we're going to find as we, as we continue through this chapter. But as a result of how completely evil man had become, God sent a flood to destroy all but Noah's family. The last destruction that, we f that is mentioned is the destruction uh, of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's found in Genesis 18, verse 20. It says, So the Lord told Ab Abraham, I have heard a great outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin is so flagrant. Now, there are many sins happening in, in Sodom and Gomorrah, but if we look at the book of Jude in verse 7, it gives us a little bit better idea. It says, And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of God's eternal fire and God's judgment. So Jude makes it clear <clears throat> that one of the reasons, if not the primary reason, for their destruction had to do with their sexual immorality. Um, and as we continue through the rest of Second Peter chapter 2, and we're picking up at verse 10, we're going to see uh, why this is important to take note of. So starting at verse 10, it says, 
and he is especially hard on those who follow their own twisted sexual desire and who despise authority. These people are proud and arrogant, daring even to scoff at supernatural beings without so much as trembling. But the angels, who are far greater in power and strength, do not dare to bring from the Lord a charge of blasphemy against those supernatural beings. These false teachers are like unthinking animals, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed. They scoff at the things at things they do not understand, and like animals they will be destroyed. Their destruction is their reward for the harm they have done. They love to indulge in evil pleasures in broad daylight. They are a disgrace and a stain among you. They delight in deception, and even as they eat with you in your fellowship meals, they commit adultery with their eyes, and their desire for sin is never satisfied. They lure unstable people into sin, and they are well-trained in greed. They live under God's curse. They have wandered off the right road and followed the footsteps of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved to earn money by doing wrong. But Balaam was stopped from his mad course when his donkey rebuked him with a human voice. These people are useless as dried up springs or as a mist blown away by the wind. They're doomed to the blackest darkness. They brag about themselves with empty foolishness, boasting with an appeal to twisted sexual desires. They lure back into sin those who have barely escaped from a lifestyle of deception. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of sin and corruption. For you are a slave to whatever controls you. And when people escape from the wickedness of, their, of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and then get tangled up and enslaved by sin again, they are worse off than before. It would be better that they had never known the way to righteousness than to know it and then reject the command they were given to live a holy life. They prove the truth of the proverb, a dog as a dog returns to its vomit, and another says, a washed pig returns to the mud. All right, that was a, that was a mouthful. We're going to go back through, and, and I'm going to pick out, there's three main things that Peter indicates are kind of the driving motivations that were listed in this section. Uh, the things that, that, that motivate these false teachers to teach what they do. The first thing, um, not the first thing he mentions, but one of the things that he mentioned is greed. Um, another thing that they mention is twisted sexual desires or evil pleasures. And uh, the third is the defiance of authority or pride. So interestingly enough, um, if you look at 1 John it categorizes everything that the world has to offer into three different categories. It talks about the lust of flesh, or actually the, the lust of the eyes, which would be greed. It talks about the lust of the flesh, which would be your sensual desires, anything to have to do with your, your senses. And of course, um, and then pride of life, which uh, is, is, uh, is pride, is, is the defiance of authority. And they are also the three things that Jesus was tempted with by Satan in the, when he was in the desert, when he was uh, fasting after being baptized. And so these are the three things that are kind of common to man, the three big categories of things that people are tempted with. And they're the three things that motivate these false teachers to uh, 
to teach what they teach, and, and it's also the things that, that uh, cause people to want to follow the things that they teach. So um, number one, uh, we're going to kind of expand on these a little bit. Agreed, we read that uh, they are well-trained in greed, it said. They're like Balaam, who loved to earn money by doing wrong. And then if we go all the way back up to, the, to verse 3, which we didn't just read, but we read earlier, it says, in their greed, they will make up clever lies to get a hold of your money. So I think that we've all seen teachers um, on TV or on the internet that are kind of openly bragging about their wealth, you know, really flaunting it and promising that God wants you to be wealthy too. And I have to tell you, when I watch them, it really seems like they love their money. It really seems like they're in love with money. And it seems like having a treasure on earth is very, very important to them. And there's a lot of verses in the Bible that warn us against chasing after those things, to warn us against seeking treasure on earth. And we're constantly reminded to find our contentment in God, to find our trust in God for all of our needs. If we look at Hebrews 13.5, it says, don't love money, but be satisfied with what you have For God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. 1 Timothy 6.17 says, Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud, not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. And what we need for enjoyment comes from God, not from money. Um, Not that that God might not bless us with money that we can use for enjoyment, but our focus is on God and what he wants to bless us with, not on what, uh, not in money and trying to fill every last whim of desire that we have. We want to store up treasures in heaven. Our, our, our goal here is, is not simply for entertainment, but it says, actually encourages those who have money, if, you, if we were to continue reading, it says that they should use it for doing good, and that they should share it with those who are in need. All right, the second motivation of false teachers is twisted sexual desires or evil pleasures. So in the last 10 verses that we read, um, in chapter 2, sexual immorality is mentioned three different times, and it's implied once by the phrase evil pleasures, which uh, the Greek word that's used there uh, generally refers to sensual pleasures. So sexual immorality was a huge part of what false teaching was in the past and is a huge part of the false teachings that we see today. Um, Many of you, upon hearing this uh, phrase, twisted sexuality, may have immediately started thinking about the talk and the headlines about all of the um, different types of uh, gender identities and sexual orientations that seem to be you know, the focus of culture today. It seems that um, they've been elevated to such a point that they've, they've become like the primary way that people define who they are, what their identity is, is based on these things. But today, instead of focusing on that, instead of focusing on, on all of the things that are not good, we're going to instead just focus in on what we know to be true. What is godly sexuality? Um, what is the definition of a godly definition of sexuality or gender identity? So just so you know, this isn't going to be an exhaustive answer. Um, this is really just intended to be just a simple reminder for those who already know the answer. Um, if you are unsure, 
of what you believe, if some of the, the thoughts that are out in the world today have made you kind of question different things and wonder what the Bible really does say, I want to encourage you to study it out. Um, starting by depending on the Bible as your anchor for truth and allowing the, Holy, allowing the Holy Spirit to teach you. That is a critical part because one of the main ways that people fall into false teaching is when they don't allow the Holy Spirit to teach what it says but, and, they, and they don't go into it desiring truth. Instead, they, they want to figure out how it can mean what they want it to mean. It's, it's sometimes easier. You know, life seems easier if it could just say what what won't make waves, what won't make, will make life a little easier. But we have to be willing to be wrong. We have to be willing to get an answer that's not easy and that's not comfortable. So, first, seek truth in the Bible. Second, like I said last week, um, we all need a Paul. You could settle for a Gordy or a Rose, um, <laughs> but, but this, the, the point, like I said last week, um, and maybe settle wasn't the right word. I'm sorry about that, Gordy. Uh, uh, the point I made last week is, is that as Paul was to Timothy, we need somebody, somebody in our life that can encourage us um, and sometimes even teach us and correct us. And so don't be afraid to talk to one of your brothers and sisters in Christ and ask them if they would help you study through it if you, if you feel like you need help, if something doesn't make sense. Um, all right. So back to the question, what is a godly definition of sexual or gender identity? Uh, For that, we're going to look at Mark 10, verse 6 through 9. It says, but God made them male and female and from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. And then we're also going to look at Hebrews 13.4, which says, Give honor to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage. God will surely judge people who are immoral and who commit adultery. So there's a, there's a faithfulness of marriage and there's, there's a, a holding to the, that sex is within the binds of marriage. And so the, the, the Bible defines uh, men as males, women as females, and it confines godly marriage and godly sex between one man and one woman. One woman. And that, in a super simplified nutshell, is not just God's perfect plan for sexuality, but is the only way that is pure and holy. And outside of it is a corruption of what God intended when he gave us this gift of sex and gender to mankind. So um, Christians sometimes, whether it's earned or not, are given a reputation for being uh, homophobic or transphobic or some other kind of description like that because we believe that some lifestyles are sinful. But the biblical stance that, that we talked about is that even heterosexual sex outside of a marriage covenant is corrupting what God had intended. So we're not picking on an individual group. That's why I want to look at what the Bible says because it's not about this group or that group. It's just about God has this plan and anything outside of that is not God's plan. Anything outside of that is a corruption of God's plan. So um, we're not about picking on individuals. We're just about loving God and obeying his law. We see his law 
and his regulations is sweeter than honey, that they'll guide to something better than our own desires. And we believe that's true for, for people who are living outside of God's will, that, that there's something better for them. So we don't walk in pride or in self-righteousness because uh, we are right and they are wrong. Like we, we aren't right. God is right. So we walk in, in humble submission that God who is right, in, in we humble submission to God who is right, and we eagerly follow him because this new life that he created in us um, has us longing to please him. So we who have experienced God's love and his mercy in our lives, and we've, we've experienced the removal of the disgusting stains of sin that we had on us, we are now ambassadors of Christ, and we long that anyone who is caught in any sort of false teaching or any sort of sexual sin, we long that they would receive the same new life that we have received and that they would no longer be held in bondage to these lifestyles, but would be delivered from them and be delivered from the destruction that it will lead to. While we are still sinners, God loved us, and we carry that same love out in the world, regardless of what what lifestyle people are living, God wants to love them and free them from that. But that, again, there's no lack of love in holding to God's law, there's actually love shown because we want to save those who are lost. Um, I'm going to ask the worship team if they could come. The uh, third motivation uh, is pride. And we, uh, we read that false teachers despise authority. We read that they are proud and that they're arrogant that they brag about themselves in empty, foolish boasting. And then going back again to the very beginning of the chapter, it says um, that they teach destructive heresies and even deny the master who bought them. I don't know if you knew this, but the word heresies, especially the Greek word that's used here, one of the definitions for it means it's a self-chosen opinion. A self-chosen opinion This is the danger in pride, that someone would put so much value in their own abilities and in their own thoughts that they would raise their thoughts as equal to or greater than God's thoughts. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone proud in heart is an uh, abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, they will not go unpunished. They're an abomination to the Lord. That's firm talking. This is, God is not, doesn't take it lightly when people raise themselves up above him or equal to him. One way of shining a light on whether somebody is a false teacher or, or if we even have attitudes in our own lives that, that maybe are prideful um, there's an example of, of Paul and, and how he views himself that's given in 1 Corinthians 4 um, that we can kind of compare ourselves to and we can compare the, the attitudes and, and character traits of, of these teachers with. <clears throat> he says, so look at Apollos and me as mere servants of Christ who have been put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. Now, a person who has been put in charge of a manger must be faithful. As for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated 
by you or by any human authority. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove that I'm right. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. So don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time. Before the Lord returns, he will bring our darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. Then God will give to each one whatever praise is due. Dear brothers and sisters, I have used Apollos and myself to illustrate what I have been saying. If you pay attention to what the prophet, or if you pay attention to what I have quoted from the scriptures, you won't be proud of one of your leaders at the expense of the other for what gives you the right to make such a judgment. What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it were not a gift? This is a great depiction of a humble teacher. He wasn't looking for accolades from any of the people listening. He was leaving it up to God to judge. He didn't need the the approval of man, but was willing to stand on what God said regardless. <clears throat> and at the end, he gives us something to help us to follow his example. He says, remember that we need to remember that all that we have and all that we are are from God. All that we have and all we all that we are is from God. And that that allows us to be humble. That that helps us to to recognize that anything great, anything we're good at, anything that that we're talented in isn't because we are so good. It's because God has so blessed us. And so we just return the glory back to him. Being humble can protect us from getting caught up in the deception of false teachers because it allows us to be open to correction. There's there's a ton more that I I wanted to share. Um, I want to expand on a lot of these different things, but... um, Seems like the message was just going on and on, and so I, uh, I'm going to cons- make it a little bit more concise. Um, I hope you all love the Bible because I know we've read a lot of it today, and I have a little bit more to share with you. There's a couple more verses we're going to go into. So, in closing, um, I've got one more thing that will help uh, keep us from being deceived. Um, I want to add something that you already know, but I'm going to tell you anyways. In conjunction with the Bible says is, is our uh, in conjunction with the fact that the Bible is our primary source of testing everything else, it says that we need to continue to stay connected to the body of believers. We look at Ephesians 4:11. It says, "Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's, to equip God's people to do His work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come into such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like, Christ, like children. We, will be, we won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like truth. Those who are called to equip you are found in the church. In the church, we're to build unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. We're we're growing together 
in the knowledge of God's Son, where we're building each other up, where we're, we can't get to where, <laughs> you can't get to the maturity that you'd like to get in the knowledge of God without other believers alongside of you helping you to go the right direction, acting as bumpers so that when you, when you start to veer, you can be corrected, you can be saved through the truth of God's word being reminded to you by your brothers and sisters in Christ. So I'm going to quickly just uh, shoot off seven main takeaways, um, and then we're going to sing a last song. So number one, there will be, there are and there will be false teachers. Two, their motivations are the same things that lure others in. Three, there are pressures all around us that push us towards false teaching, which include the love of money, sensual desires, and pride. The spirit of pride that is sweeping through the world is, um, is, is happening in a more flagrant way than we've seen in our lifetimes, I believe, where individuals are, co- uh, are declaring themselves as the authors of truth, proclaiming their opinions as my truth. This is my truth. Um, don't be like that. Remain humble. Don't let that influence how you interact with the world around you. Sexual immorality has been normalized in our society as well as in many churches. It is a major battleground today, and many Christians are being deceived, and we must know what the truth is so that we are not led into false beliefs. Number six, as followers of the Lord God and his Son, Jesus Christ, whom we love, we recognize that God is God and we are not and we submit to his loving direction for our lives and in all these issues that maybe seem hard or seem complicated, we trust that God is God. Um, And number seven, we hold firmly to the word of God found in the Bible as our ultimate test for what is true. As we go to sing this last song, um, I just want you to have this thought in mind. I want you to um, be in meditation about, I, I know that we're not false teachers, we're not, we're not looking to push any false agenda, um, but these motivations, these, these, these three different categories uh, that are temptations for all man, there's, there's ways that they can creep up. They don't start full-fledged, you know, fruitful plants, but they start as little seeds, little areas where we've maybe given a little bit of gray area to how we view finances, how we view uh, sensual pleasures, whether it be food, sex, or entertainment, um, where we've, we've allowed them to have a higher place in our life than they should, or whether it's pride, where we, we've, we value our opinion more highly than we should. Um, just to prayerfully ask God to show us what are our... What are these things that, that, that might be growing in, in me that I need to shut down, that I need to submit to you, that I need to, to stop before they grow into something or before they become a door, a doorway that, that tempts me towards a teaching that isn't true? So um, let's stand, and, uh, and I'm going to pray as we start to sing the song. Lord God, I just pray that you would um, speak to us through your Holy Spirit, that your Spirit would be the great revelator in our lives, Lord, that as we ponder your word, 
your scripture as it's brought to our mind or as we read it in our Bibles, that you would speak to us what is true and what is right and that you would hold us on right paths, Lord, that you would cause us to be uh, a light that shines brightly that can guide others in truth as well, Lord. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Church, the world is a dark place, but God has sent his light, and that light lives in us. Ephesians 5, 6 through 14 says, Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on those who disobey him. Don't participate in the things that these people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light, for this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It is, a shame, it is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret, but their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them. For the light makes everything visible. That is why it is said, Awake, awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So today, go walking in the truth, listening to the Holy Spirit, and desiring nothing more than to bring glory to God. Amen. Amen.